You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. All right, turn in your copy of God's Word then to Psalm 95, as I said. Psalm 95. Uh, As it's been mentioned, and I'm sure you are well aware of it, it's December 31st, y'all. I know, the last day of 2023, like if there's anything that you had uh, on your aspirations or your list of to-dos in 2023, well, you've got less than 24 hours to make it happen, right? It's, 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 it's here, and then you'll have to put it on you know, your 2024 goals as, as well. But as we come to the scripture this morning, I want us to really just end the year on a familiar note. Uh, a, a note to really round out our Christmas meditations that we began a few weeks ago here. You remember here just uh, a few weeks ago, we traced the Old Testament anticipation of the coming king that would come through King David's line and would be born to rule in, uh, in an everlasting way. And then last week on Christmas Eve, we traced the announcement of the arrival of this baby king from Luke's gospel and Now as we uh, understand who he is and that he has come, and though we say this often, our right response to God's work and to his kingship in our life is one of worship, of unashamed worship, to stand in awe and wonder with reverential fear and amazement at our king, at King Jesus, the one who left heaven's throne and came to live uh, amongst us. And so we, we want to express that worship to the king in an unashamed, passionate worship. And now even as I say that to many of us in here, that's probably not new information that the king, King Jesus specifically, is worthy of our worship. But in some ways, even though we are familiar with this, I think we come to a time in the calendar and in our life where we need to tighten back down our tent stakes. Any of you campers in the house like to take your family camping? Some of y'all love to. Some of y'all tried it once and swore never to do it again. My family and I, we do enjoy camping. We don't get to go out as often as you do. But if you do camp, and you camp for any length of time, uh, you've probably experienced this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, phenomenon in uh, camping, is that along the way, if you're out there for several days, that the tent stakes and the strings start to loosen. Just through the use uh, uh, throughout the week, you know, the changing of the temperatures, but oftentimes they loosen just because of, you know, the wind and weather conditions or because your kids think they're wrestlers and need to, you know, turn your tent into a, you know, into a wrestling ring. But for whatever reason, it comes at some point in order to avoid the collapse and to enjoy the, you know, staying in your tent and keeping it upright, you need to, whether daily or at some point, along the way, just come back down, hammer down the tent stakes, maybe move them, maybe tighten them in order to keep everything upright. And so the the statement and the encouragement this morning as we come to worship the king, we read Psalm 95 in much the same way of the resetting of the tent strings of our heart and our soul and our mind and strength in worship 
of our King. Hopefully you found Psalm 95 there in the middle of your Bible. I want to read it for us, and then we will explore it more deeply. God's Word says this. Follow along in your Bible there. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this is God's word for God's people. And similar to a few weeks ago, when we looked at Psalm 24, at the center of this uh, psalm, or the key in which this psalm is written, is this main point. Write it down. It's here on the screen and there in your notes that the Lord is king over all people and property. A very simple statement, but it is at the center. It is, uh, we might say it this way, that it is the key in which this uh, psalm is written. That this song, like songs, are in the key of A or G or D or whatever they may be. This is a regal psalm. The Lord is king over all people and property. Some call this psalm an enthronement psalm. Much like Psalm 24 and others, they give lyrics to worshiping God as our king. And psalms like these are rich in theology, rich in, in, in practice. They're not just like good lyrics for calls to worship. You know, like what we do at the beginning of our worship services as we point everyone vertical and remind us that why we are here is to exalt King Jesus. It, it, it's more than just good lyrics. Within them are commands to obey, invitations to accept, and illustrations that bring color to life. There's significance or implications for all of us, even in that statement. And so we make just a plain statement here that the Lord is king over all people and property. Uh, this, this means something to us. For I could also say that Salman bin Abdul Aziz al-Saud is the king of Saudi Arabia. It's a statement but it likely has little bearing upon your life, nor does it compel you to lift your voice in worship or bow your head in humility. But the Lord is king over all people and property should. Should elicit shouts of amen or praise or bowing our head to our knees in humility. And so why we say that and what that looks like, Psalm 95 lays out for us in these two stanzas and many other passages of Scripture give some, uh, uh, some context and some teaching to us. And so let's just take the two stanzas here in Psalm 95 and, 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 and see what we discover here. Write this down, point number one, because the Lord is the king, we must worship him with passion. 
Because the Lord is our sovereign king, worship him with passion. See, both stanzas, if you notice here in verse 1 and verse 6, they begin with what? A commanding invitation to to come. In the same way we began our, our worship service this morning with the song, Behold, with this reminder of uh, 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 to, to come. Plemer, in his commentary on the Psalms, he, he says that come has the kindness of a call and the authority of a command. The kindness of a call and the authority of a command, like a summons into something extraordinary. Uh, an invitation into something that uh, is so beyond us. And then the lyrics then proceed to tell us how and to whom and to why we heed this invitation to passionate worship. Do you see that there? They, they tell us the, the, the how and the to whom and the why to worship with passion. Look at just the, the how. On repeat in the first two verses is this phrase, let us. Now those of you going on a diet in the new year, this isn't let us like in a salad. Dumb pastor joke, sorry about that. But you might think of these four things as ingredients to passionate worship. What what does it say? How do we let us sing? Okay? Lifting our voices. What we've even done this morning, let us make a joyful noise. Those cheers and exclamations of praise to the goodness of, of God. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Passionate worship involves being in his presence and, and giving thanks, have a heart full of gratitude. It tells us to come uh, into, or let us make a joyful noise then with songs of praise. This is how we worship with, uh, uh, with passionate worship, with singing and joyful noises, thanksgiving and songs of praise. But in the midst of all this, it also tells us to, to whom we direct our worship. Let us sing not to ourselves, but to the... Lord, Yahweh, the one revealed in the burning bush in Exodus 3 as the covenant name of our God. I am who I am, the eternally existing one, the one outside of all definition, the one outside of all boundaries. We worship, we direct our passionate worship to the Lord, the one who is also referred to in verse 1 as the rock of our salvation. A great uh, image here, a symbol of strength and immovability. It's the one upon whom our salvation rests or our salvation is anchored to. Like in a ground where uh, it is too hard to drive tent stakes would be wrapped around a rock or a dead man to keep it in place. To the Old Testament saints, the Lord was their rock of salvation from their enemies. The one who rescued them in battle and protected them on every side, particularly as they uh, entered into the promised land and then made it their home. This is the one to whom our praise, our passionate praise is directed. But it also tells us why in this stanza. Look at verse 3. Why? For the Lord... Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all other gods. He deserves this praise for his exceeding greatness as God and king over all others, both real and imagined. But also he deserves it because of his sovereign rule. In his hand, 
a, a praise for under his control. He deserves this kind of praise because all the depths of the, uh, the earth and the heights of the mountains are in his hands. Like a shovel in your hands is in your control. So the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are in God's control. Over everything as our king and as creator. For verse 5, why does he deserve this passionate praise? Look at what it says. The sea is his for he found it. He saw it one day as he passed by, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. He is the creator. He controls it all because he created it all. That's why we say at the center of this is the Lord is the king over all people and property. And so as we understand this, Psalm 95 then leads us then to, to worship the, the king with then great passion for as we understand just the, the depths and the heights and the implications of God's kingly and greatness, of his control, of his creative power. How could we stand by silently, unmoved by the exceeding greatness and goodness of our king? That's why we worship him with passion, with songs and shouts of exclamation. So we likewise today, as we've already done, and we'll get an opportunity to as uh, later in the service, let us be even renewed afresh in 2024 as we direct our worship to the Lord, to the rock of our salvation, to our King, and not to ourselves, not to our schedules, not to any earthly thing, but to our God, our King, who sits on heaven's throne. But it goes on before that, for there's a second stanza here. We worship the Lord as king with passion, but because he is king, write this down, number two, that we also bow down with humility. We bow down in humility. Verse 6 then repeats in the same way. There's again this summons to worship, the kindness of a call and the command of authority here. But this time, take note that instead of voices being raised up in passionate praise, the posture is one of being bowed low in humility. David Mathis, in his book, Humbled, uh, defines humility as a response to divine initiative and help. Just very simply, that uh, humility is a, divine, a response to divine initiative and help. It is what we do when we understand who God is and how he works, and particularly how he works in our lives. Not is he, only is he just a, a God who has control over all creation, but he is our maker. He is our personal God, sovereign over your life and my life. And so as we bow down in humility, again, the stanzas tell us how and to whom and to why we worship him, bow down in humility. How? Face to the ground, right? Bow down. How? Let us kneel, kneeling before our king, before the Lord, it says, our maker. Why? Because he is our God, not a distant deity. Not an inanimate object on a shelf, but the God of the universe, the king above all gods, our God. We are his people. He is our shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, and we are simply his sheep. The people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand in his 
control, underneath his care. As we understand this, what could we do but bow down and to kneel before his sovereign goodness and greatness? And the psalm ends, the the Purdue list stands at ends to drive home the point. The lyrics end with a gracious warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for there are consequences when we don't worship and bow down. For a failure to recognize this or just an outright rejection of God's greatness and his kingship over us. And what's really fascinating to me in this, uh, uh, in, in, in what this text is referring to in this gracious warning is just how much in scripture is, is written and said about this event that the psalmist here refers to. See, he's, he's referring, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test, anybody know what he's referring to there? It's back in our Old Testament. If you remember, if you were here a few years ago, as we were in uh, Exodus, he's referring to that incident in Exodus 17. Go ahead and turn there. I want, to, I want us to look at this in just a moment. Exodus is way at the beginning of your Bible. You have Genesis and then Exodus. And he's referring to this incident there. It's, that is just after Israel has been set free from their Egyptian slavery. You keep looking for it. You find it. I'll give you the context here. They've just been set free through those ten great and grievous judgments of God that end in the death of the firstborn. You're probably familiar with it. It's a very common story. The ten plagues or the ten great and grievous judgments of God there. And that God delivers the people of God uh, through them. These some two to three million men, women, and children out from their harsh bondage. Their slavery to in Egypt and moves them now out into and towards the promised land. And after he delivers them from this and then Pharaoh wakes up and is like, oh, what have I just done? My whole labor force is, is, has been set free. And he raises up his army to go get them and to bring them back. And what happens to them at the Red Sea? People of Israel cross through on dry land. And when Pharaoh's armies uh, go in after them, what happens? Gone, Right? And the people of Israel have experienced all of this, the greatness of God. Not only that, they get on the other side, they have a worship service, and then they're hungry. And what does God do as they're in the wilderness? Brings manna from heaven every single day. Lord's Prayer, you know, give us today our daily bread. Those Israelites in that day for 40 years literally had God provide for them. And they see it. And yet, even as they've literally experienced the miraculous deliverance and provision of God, now what happens in Exodus 17? They thirsty. They're thirsty. And they complain as if God had never done anything for them. It's like the kid complaining on December 26th with the mountain of toys next to him that his mom and dad never do anything for him. And yet God hears their complaint. He's moved to compassion regardless. And he instructs Moses to take care of things. Look at it here for a second. I'll read it to us. Just the first seven verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Note this. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses. 
They're mad at him as, as the leader, and they said, or they demand, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So here's one of the initial incidences, the example in which Psalm 95 is referring to. This year, this place, Meribah uh, meaning quarreling, Massah meaning testing, where they put the Lord to the test and they were quarreling uh, with uh, Moses as their leader and with one another. And that's... What happens? Moses strikes the rock. Water comes from this rock from an unlikely place. And God again delivers them. And also takes care of their need of this thirst. But guess what, y'all? Some time goes on. They move throughout the wilderness. Actually make some circles around the wilderness. And in Numbers 20, an almost identical incident happens again. On repeat, turn over there, just the Numbers, chapter 20. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Same problem, different day. Numbers chapter 20, spoiler alert also, we're going to preach through Numbers after Easter this coming year, start working our way through Numbers. Begin in verse 1, Numbers chapter 20, the people of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin, same thing, Zin, Sin, it's the same location. In the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam being the sister of Moses and Aaron. They were kind of the trifecta of leadership. Moses being the primary leader, and Aaron being the spokesperson. Miriam, in many ways, a worship leader. But she's died now. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. The glory of the Lord appeared to them. Together they go seek the Lord. They have this problem. They go, they seek the Lord, and the Lord spoke 
to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Probably not a great thing to call you know, the people before you. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, and therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Same problem, different day. They're thirsty. The people are upset. This time, what does God tell Moses to do? Speak to it, not to strike it. Struck it the first time. And because he didn't obey the Lord's commands precisely, there are consequences. What are the consequences? Moses and that entire generation would not enter the rest of the promised land. What Psalm 95 is referring to, right? The warning, today if you hear his voice, today if you read the example, the stories here, quarreling and testing the Lord here, we're commanded to learn from this event, from this example, to not harden our hearts and to learn from the saints of old, to bow down in humility before the Lord. And what is it that we learn? From these examples, what are there, are there truths to glean that will humble us in these passages? There are. There's several here. Here's the truths that humble us. Here's, here's just the first one. Write this down. That, that my situation is nothing new to the Lord. The repetition of this event here and, the, and, and all the things that the scripture has to teach us in this is that our, our situation really is nothing new. I mean, you can imagine the logistics of two to three million people on the move who are now thirsty as they leave the wilderness. You know, moms in the house know the logistics of just moving like two to three kids out the door to go shopping. And as soon as you like leave the, the, you know, your driveway, what is the kid saying? I'm thirsty. And you try to strike something to find something that water will come out of, right? Maybe you're on top of things and prepared water bottles or whatever, but you're finding like the half-empty ones underneath the seat, and you're like, eh, it doesn't look too cloudy. Here, try this one. <laughs> but this, issues like this are nothing new here. They're here, God is with them. He's been faithful every step of the way. Even as we look at our lives, there's... Like, God, as we just take a moment to look back in our own life, we see the faithfulness of God again and again, over and over, even in the moments where we are presently thirsty. Man, there, this is a different example, right? There are two to three million. This is a bigger thing. They're thirsty. There's a lot of them. 
People are pretty cool-headed about it all. They work together to find a solution to solve the water problem. Now, that's not what happens in these stories, right? They have an inability to even be reasonable and work together, and it looks like that's not a new problem, right? They quarrel with Moses. They started grumbling, and the grumbling got, they became even more aggressive where they're now demanding, give us water to drink, and then they begin blaming each other, blaming him. Like, why did you bring us out into this place to die? Sounds like maybe work meetings, right? Moses teaches us some things about moments like this, right? He sees the situation clearly, and to whom does he seek his counsel from? The Lord the one whose power has been proven over and over and over, the one who has delivered them. And the thing about this, even what we learned like here, it's nothing new. Like the, the whole thing, God would have been perfectly just to strike them down. For their lack of faith, for their offensive grumbling. It's like how many times would God have to prove himself to them? Like literally, right? This wasn't just like some distant thing in their case. Like this had literally happened like the day before they had gotten food from heaven. And, and, and just like within weeks and months prior to this, they had seen uh, the Pharaoh's army obliterated in the sea and all the, the judgments of God throughout Egypt. And the Lord just instructs Moses and all this, get the plurality, get the elders, get the staff, that symbol of God's presence and power. And he tells them, I'll be at the rock, strike the rock, judge the rock. Then the water and the relief, the rescue will come from death. Either thirst, it shall be yours. And it's exactly what happens. They name the place after it. And it's a scene like this, as you're saying. It's just played out countless times throughout human history, countless times in your own life here. It's nothing new to the Lord as we find ourselves in places where we are thirsty, where we have present need. As we look to the Lord, He comes through. Here's another thing that we learn in the message of truth that humble us. Like, grumbling gets us nowhere, does it? I've said this many times before. Like, grumbling literally gets us nowhere. What do we gain by grumbling? Complaining. I mean, maybe it's like we get things off our chest or whatever. I don't know. But ultimately, as we continue to grumble, it only heads in a bad direction. Before you know it, there's quarreling and you're angry and there's raging and blaming and bitter and then isolated. And now all of a sudden, it's like your situation is totally worse. Physically, as we hurt others and ourselves through our words and through our actions, and spiritually speaking, as we poison our minds and embitter our souls and we blind ourselves to the truth of God's word and the care and grace of God's community around us. Grumbling gets us nowhere. But even in the midst of this, you know, there's a truth that humbles us. God's grace has been shown to us. As I said just a moment ago, they should have been struck down, and so should we. Every time we've grumbled against God or blamed Him for, or for something, that uh, blamed Him for evil or of having uh, bad plans for us. And yet instead, in the midst of all this, God stays there in their midst and had Moses strike the rock. Their judgment that should have been struck on them was struck on the rock. That's the whole imagery. That's why in the first instance, why God had Moses strike the rock in an act of judgment upon the rock that was due to, for the Israelites. 
And so too for us. Instead, Christ was struck for our sin. The judgment that was for us was passed to him. He was struck for our grumbling. What's amazing here is, as I just referenced earlier, like in Psalm 95, in referencing this passage, we looked at the context, the events that lead to this, both in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, but our New Testament writers pick up on the imagery and the lessons here that God is teaching us through it. And the warning that the psalmist gives, uh, Paul also picks up in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says this, just listen, you can turn over there if you want, but let me just read a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, Paul is saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Referencing this, they were led by the cloud, you know, by day, the fire at night, they went through the Red Sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, not baptized like we think of it here, but literally immersed is the Greek word. They were immersed and brought in, brought through with Moses. He was the one leading them. And they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven. They all drank the same spiritual drink. And they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Isn't this crazy? The rock was Christ. Struck down, judged once for all for us. The imagery there in that, uh, you know, centuries before, millennia, thousands of years before Christ came, this event happened. And God would use it as a later picture of to the greatness of what Jesus would do for us, where he would be struck once for all for us. That's why the second time this happens, God tells Moses to speak and not strike, because it would, there's some imagery here. For Christ would be struck once for all, not on repeat, for our sin. Once for all, and God would use even these multiple instances in his grace, by his sovereignty, so that now here we stand, even thousands of years after both of these events, amazed at the providence of God. Amazed at the grace of God to us. Amazed that the rock would be struck instead of them, that the Israelites would receive the water that they needed, who we also know Christ as the living water welling up to eternal life by his spirit who is given to us, flowing from Christ now to us who believe. This is the gospel, church. In the midst of this, all in the Psalm 95, the warning to telling us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart to bowing down in humility is an invitation to come to Christ. The one who paid for your sin, the one who satisfies eternally and gives us his spirit that we might walk in his spirit in newness of life. Let today be the day then of your salvation where you say, yes, I need that. Christ, you are the rock of my salvation. Takes on a whole new meaning in Psalm 95 for us, doesn't it? It gives, gives greater depth 
to our worship, the rock being the one who anchors our faith, the rock being the one that was judged and, and, and struck for our sin, the rock which uh, from it flows this spiritual life of the Holy Spirit for us. This is the God that we worship with unashamed praise, with a, that we bow down with humility. These are truths that humble us. Grumbling gets us nowhere. Grace and the gospel has been shown to us. But here's, here's, here's another one, a fourth one, a truth that humbles us is that God goes with me. See, just like in their thirsty moments, in our own thirsty moments, where we have a need, where we're asking, is the Lord among us or not? Or is he just the absent king in some distant country that has no uh, uh, acknowledgement or no interest in being involved in our lives? Rather, as we stop and look around, what do we see? God has been with us every step of the way. It's proven at every season of your life, in every hardship, in every season of blessing, in every, every high water mark and every low water mark. God has been there uh, every step of the way. It was no less true then as it is uh, today. For to us, God has promised in our trials, what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. As you commit to live on a mission, carrying out the Great Commission, as you seek to make that one of your goals is to be more mission-driven about the Great Commission, Jesus promised in that, that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. As we commit ourselves to making disciples, of seeing people come to Christ, of living out our lives for the Lord, Jesus has a special, I will go with you. And so as you find yourself asking this question, as you head into 2024 and you have your own struggles and there may be financial difficulties or things with school or things with work or your career or whatever, you're asking, like, is, Lord, are you among us or not? Well, hopefully we can learn from our ancestors. Yeah, God is with me every step of the way. Be more confident in our salvation, more convinced of his goodness so that you can be uh, answering this question with confidence. Well, yes, of course he is with me. There's another truth that humbles us so we glean from this example is that rest is where God is. What was the consequence again for Moses in that generation? They shall not enter his rest. That's how... Psalm 95 ends, Therefore I swore in my wrath, this is God speaking, they shall not enter my rest. Now in the scripture here, when it speaks of rest, there's, there's multiple meanings you know, of rest and the scope of scripture. God rested in creation. He had created everything. He spoke it into his existence. It was good and he ceased from creating. He ceased from work. Israel then would rest when they enter into the promised land. They would rest from the brutal slavery and the work that they were uh, doing for, for years there in Egypt. They would come now into the rest that the promised land offered them. We now rest in Christ of his finished work on the cross, our salvation rest. We don't have to work our fingers to the bone trying to do enough good things that God will look at us and say, okay, you've done enough. You can be on my team. I'll now save you. But we rest in the Lord. 
and in what he has accomplished. And we also look forward to the rest that we'll get in heaven. And what awaits us in the presence of God in heaven. In this case, in multiple instances of rest, or multiple usages rather of rest in our Bible, Moses and that generation were not to enter the rest of the promised land. Because of their disobedience, because they stole, Moses in particular, stole glory from God, they would not enter into that rest. It's a warning to learn from this that rest is where God is and our disobedience can keep us from rest. It's interesting, I've said also that there's so much said about this event, about this passage, not only in Exodus, Numbers, here in Psalms, saw 1 Corinthians 10, but the writer of Hebrews picks this up as well. This same gracious warning is on repeat three times. Turn over to Hebrews 3 for a second. I want you to see this. I told you at the beginning you're going to want your Bible. Hebrews is towards the end. If you just go all the way back to Revelation and then go left through several books, you'll find Hebrews. There's an unknown author. But God has much to say about our humility before the Lord, about the dangers of grumbling and about His grace and His his rest here. I said He gave the the example, the event is actually in Exodus and Numbers. There's an exhortation in Psalm 95, and now we have this exposition both in 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3 and 4. I want to read it here for us. I know there's a lot here this morning, but hopefully you're catching the depth of why we and to whom we and how we worship. Pick it up in verse 7, Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my Rest. Where have we seen that? Psalm 95, right? It's like a direct quotation there that uh, the writer of Hebrews is bringing it out. And who, to whom does he attribute the authorship of Psalm 95? Who says this? As the Holy Spirit says, right? An acknowledgement of the divine inspiration and authorship of our Bibles. All of the words in the pages of this book here in Scripture are inspired by God, breathed out by Him through human authors. And what's fascinating here, he says the Holy Spirit here, if you look over, we'll get to it in a moment, in 4.7, he says, saying through David, the human author, that the writer of Hebrews attributes Psalm 95 to. So here he says today, he warns us, listen to this, Bow down in humility, do not harden your hearts. And then what does he say in verse 12? Let's pick it up. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another uh, every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, we share in this grace, this rest that he has given us. Today, here the second time it's said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Interesting way to describe grumbling over water. For who 
were those who heard and yet rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Still his people still called, but because of this disobedience, because of this unbelief, there were consequences. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. The good news of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, they did not believe, enter the rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Where did God say that? Where's that found? Yeah, in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Like, come on, writer of Hebrews, you know that. It's Genesis. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, there's the human author, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Looking forward to the rest of heaven, we now rest in the grace that was given to us in Christ in our salvation. We rest in that, verse 11, but we also let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So you get this, get the, what he's saying here. We don't work to earn our salvation. Christ took care of that. It was impossible for us. But now that we are saved, we work not to stay saved, but we work by the grace of God in order that the good news may continue to go forward and we may grow in our faith for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Why do I read all this? Because it exhorts us to something incredible. We're called to bow down from Psalm 95 in humility. Here, Hebrews 3 and 4 teaches us how to do that. See, how much, how much of all these things are true in, uh, of you? And so, you know, as you look ahead to 2024, 20, is there anxiety, distress, unrest that exists in your heart? Well, it tells us here, it's like, okay, well then examine your heart. Do I believe or not? Yes. Okay, I believe. If I don't believe, I need to repent and believe. But if I believe, okay, then what does God tell me to do? To obey his voice, to trust his provision, to walk according to his word, and to do so both personally and communally. 
See, look in verse 12, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Like there's a personal element of examining our heart and asking God to do so. But there's a communal element of this also in verse 13. But exhort... Uh, like a, 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 an encouragement with some force. Right? Not in a rude way, not in an unkind way, in a gracious, loving, truth-filled way, obviously, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, there's a communal aspect that we are involved in one another's lives to help us worship God in passionate praise, and to bow down with this kind of biblical humility, all under the Word of God. Where did we round out here? Under the Word of God, our own personal examinations, why we come to the Word of God. As we live out in a community, what are we centered around? Counseling with and, and, and teaching and helping and encouraging and comforting one another with. It's with the Word of God that is alive and active and sharp and divisive here in a way, a discerning here. None of us can read the Bible and not be exposed because it is the Word of God. See, what's what's true here, church? We need one another. Paul Tripp refers to this passage a lot. He counsels with it. He uh, refers to it in many of his books. You maybe even have heard him or speak of it or read him as he is talked about it, but the reality is, is we need one another. We need the exposing word of God because we are, can be saved and yet still spiritually blind to our own remaining sin. So what's the solution? How do we, uh, how do we bow down? How do we, because God is our king, because he's given us his word, like how, do we, how do we bow down in humility? Well, we stay plugged into an uncommon community with having people speaking truth and love into our lives. We need this because the falling away, the, the progression there, uh, this unbelieving heart that leads to fall away, that you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, like blind to your own blindness. And God in His grace gives us an uncommon community, people around us who love us, who love us enough even to say hard things that come from God's word. We must stay plugged into the word ourselves to encourage us and to correct us and to comfort us on the daily. You know, there's no better time than tomorrow, January 1, to start a reading plan. To come to passages like we find in our Old Testament and to learn and to glean from them and to see like, wow, my situation isn't actually that extraordinary. God is so good. He is so kind here. So we commit to these things in the midst, you know, in a season where we're committing to uh, God, where we're committing to things that uh, He is working us. We we stay plugged into the Word, we stay plugged into community, and we do as Psalm ninety five summons us. We come to Him with a heart of worship, of passionate, joyful, grateful, reverential worship to the Lord. Hearts lifted high, voices singing loud and knees bowed low in humility before our King, the one who is King over our lives and all of our things.